Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. In the previous episodes of Robin Hood, we have seen how Steven Mnuchin was set up for a life of privilege and wealth. Son of a Wall Street banking icon, he attended the elite Riverdale Country School before heading to Yale, where he joined the secretive Skull and Bone Society. How he then joined his father at Goldman Sachs and made partner, selling the dangerous mortgage-backed securities which would blow up the economy in 2008. And how he went on to join a hedge fund with his friend and Skull and Bones buddy, Eddie Lampart, before then buying IndyMac Bank, rebranding it as One West, and turning it into a foreclosure machine, illegally forcing ordinary Americans from their home and making himself rich in the process. We saw how he sat on the board of Sears and watched Eddie Lampert lead it into bankruptcy, causing a quarter of a million people to lose their jobs by pumping billions of dollars into a failed stock buyback programme, whilst also selling himself the prime Sears real estate and leasing it back to the company. We also learned how his family withdrew $3.2 million in profit from his late mother's account with Bernie Madoff. But as the funds were retrieved before the Ponzi was uncovered, and due to the timing, the Mnuchins were not required to return the money to any victims as others were. We also saw how he sat on the board of Relativity Media as they borrowed $81 million from RKA Film Financing five months before they entered bankruptcy using the loan to pay back the $50 million in debt to his One West Bank rather than film promotion as it was sold to RKA. And we also saw how his wife, who had spent a career seeking fame, offended not just millions of American taxpayers when she tagged herself on Instagram getting off a private government jet wearing luxury clothing but an entire nation by rewriting the history of Zambia in her White Saviour in Africa book In Congo's Shadow. In summary, we have learned how, despite being a massive dickhead and exploiting thousands of ordinary Americans, Mnuchin somehow landed one of the most powerful jobs in the US government, the Treasury Secretary. They call it the ruling class. They call it elites. What's interesting is that I think Mnuchin was just sort of on the periphery of that club. You know, he, he did some some Hollywood producing. He, he did do this, this One West Bank consortium, but One West is not not a Wall Street bank, right? It's a, it's a, a lender out of out of uh, California. He was sort of on the periphery of this this club uh, until he hooked up with Donald Trump, and until Donald Trump, in sort of a miraculous circumstance, becomes the president of the United States. Then Mnuchin is vaulted into this core policymaking position where he's, he's one of the leaders of the club out of nowhere after being, uh, you know, this just sort of non-entity of a person for most of his career and life. And now he's in this, this huge, enormous position of power, uh, willing and able to dictate terms about how U.S. policy will be directed. And as we come to 2020, is in a position to be an engineer of the economy 
in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, we, we almost have a planned economy right now. And Steve Mnuchin is one of a, just a handful of people who are directing who survives, who doesn't in terms of the economy, what businesses are able to get lifelines, what businesses aren't, what terms they, they uh, arrive on. A lot of this is at Steve Mnuchin's discretion. So he's now at the, at the top of the list. In this final episode of Robin Hood, we will see how in 2016, Mnuchin joined Donald Trump on his campaign trail before in 2017 becoming Treasury Secretary of the USA, holding the keys to the world's largest economy. And how his tenure has been a continuation of his life's work, with tax cuts for the rich, bailouts for big business, and the cutting back of regulations for his Wall Street buddies. From Bedford, UK, I am Peter McCormack, and this is Defiance. Steven Mnuchin and Donald Trump established a business relationship together when Mnuchin's June Capital invested in two Trump Towers in Chicago and Honolulu in 2004 alongside Deutsche Bank, Fortress Investment Group and Cerberus Capital Management. When the 2008 financial crisis hit, the Chicago project became a massive financial headache for Trump, just as the project was close to completion. At risk of defaulting on hundreds of millions of dollars in loans, Trump took a legal gamble and sued the investors for causing the housing bubble, which meant he was unable to sell the units within the Chicago Tower. And ultimately, he settled. Trump had built a reputation for being a problem borrower, with many of his projects defaulting on their debts, filing for bankruptcy, or agreeing on a restructuring of his loans. Trump Taj Mahal filed for bankruptcy in 1991, Trump Castle Hotel and Casino and Trump Plaza Casino, both in Atlantic City, filed for bankruptcy in 1992. Trump Plaza Hotel in New York also filed for bankruptcy in 1992. Trump Hotels and Casino Resorts, a holding company for Trump's three casinos, filed for bankruptcy in 2004. And in 2009, Trump Entertainment Resorts, the casino holding company, filed for bankruptcy. Most banks would no longer lend to him due to his habit of defaulting on loans, but golfing and boxing trips for Mike Offit at Deutsche Bank helped secure a reliable source of funds. Offit was fired by Deutsche Bank after it was discovered that forged signatures were used in the paperwork for Trump's loans, though Offit claimed he was fired for being reckless. Following his firing, he and Trump remained friends, with Trump providing a quote for his 2014 book, saying Michael Offit offers a colourful insight into how the big money is made and or taken on Wall Street. And two years later, Offit was on hand to help Trump's presidential campaign, where his personal finances and history of bankruptcies were under attack by the Democrats. Offit wrote in an email that the defence of using the bankruptcy to his advantage wasn't resonating with voters. I believe there is a much better answer that may help diffuse this issue, Offit wrote. He advised Trump to go on the attack and blame his bankruptcy on the greedy hedge funds trying to squeeze every last dollar out of him, which aligned with Trump's drain-the-swamp populist rhetoric. It wasn't until 2016 that Trump and Mnuchin would work together again. In April of that year, he was asked by Trump if he wanted to be the national finance chairman for his campaign. At first, this appeared an odd choice, 
as Mnuchin had close ties with Democratic mega-donor George Soros and had repeatedly donated to the Clinton campaign. But Mnuchin's donations of more than $120,000 over two decades to both the Democrats and the Republican campaigns perhaps highlighted a man playing the field politically, happy to jump into government with whoever asked first. And first to ask was Donald Trump. Mnuchin's connections to Hollywood and Wall Street was an asset, as he promised Trump he would be able to help him raise funds for his campaign, and he delivered. Trump had largely funded his own campaign, primarily via loans of tens of millions of dollars, but after becoming the presumptive nominee, he knew he needed to raise more funds in his bid for presidency. I was there at the beginning when he decided to run for president, and I've been a supporter and quiet advisor behind the scenes to him, Mnuchin told Andrew Ross Sorkin. Despite raising hundreds of millions of dollars, it was significantly less than the Clinton campaign. But it didn't matter. It was Trump's message rather than the money which resonated with voters. But why did Mnuchin do this? Nobody's going to be like, well, why did he do this if I end up in the administration, Mnuchin said. And shortly after Trump won the election in November 2016, Mnuchin was top of the bill as Trump's pick for Treasury Secretary. Despite promising to drain the swamp, Trump had lined his administration with Wall Street executives. Before appointing Mnuchin as Treasury Secretary, the third Goldman executive to hold the position, he had used populist provocateur and founded board member of Breitbart, Steve Bannon, as an advisor. And similar to Trump, Mnuchin had no experience in government, and yet he would now get to play a key role in shaping tax, regulation and economic policy. But his career on Wall Street and track record with One West had alarmed the Democrats. Aside from the president, there may be no individual with a tighter grasp on the levers of our economy than the Secretary of Treasury. That has been true since the days of Alexander Hamilton. When you read about the nominee for Treasury Secretary, given all the power that this position holds, you hope not to see phrases like foreclosure machine, redlining, offshore funds, and predatory lending. The role of Treasury Secretary is to serve the people of America and not friends on Wall Street, and Elizabeth Warren outlined her fears in an hour-long speech to the Senate considering Mnuchin's nomination. The selection of Mr Mnuchin as Treasury Secretary, it stands out. The Treasury Secretary leads the council responsible for making sure Wall Street doesn't blow up our economy again. And the council can't do anything without the support of the Treasury Secretary. No other official has greater responsibility to stand up to Wall Street if they threaten the economy again. And yet, there is nothing, nothing in Mr. Mnuchin's record to suggest that he could stand up to Wall Street. In fact, there is nothing in Mr. Mnuchin's record to suggest that he would even want to stand up to Wall Street, that he's even thought of standing up to Wall Street. 
Mr. Mnuchin is the ultimate Wall Street insider. From the moment he graduated from college until today, he has worked at a big bank or a hedge fund. If Wall Street threatens to blow up the economy again, does anyone seriously expect Mr. Mnuchin to get tough with his old buddies and tell him to knock it off? In fact, you can expect just the opposite. Mr. Mnuchin pretty much laps the field when it comes to personal experience in tilting the playing field in favor of financial interests and against working families. Now there's no sheriff in town, said Senator Sherrod Brown during Mnuchin's Senate hearing. You can get away with anything with Steve Mnuchin as Secretary of the Treasury, he said. And how true would this prove to be? After Trump announced Mnuchin for the position, Democrats boycotted the Senate vote on his appointment, holding a press conference accusing Mnuchin of misleading Congress with regards to One West foreclosure practices. The vote was unable to proceed as under committee rules, 13 members must be present, including at least one Democrat. But the following day, Chairman Hatch, a Utah Republican, suspended the rule and the vote proceeded, where Steve Mnuchin was approved by 14 votes to zero. His confirmation hearing in early 2017 was a tense and largely partisan fight, where Democrats outlined his track record of self-serving and working against ordinary Americans, while Republicans argued over their hypocrisy, identifying Mnuchin's career history as making him an ideal candidate. Committee Chair Senator Hatch claimed that no one has credibly alleged that any laws, regulations or industry standards were violated by companies run by Mr Mnuchin. This despite a leaked memo from the California Attorney General's office noting widespread misconduct by One West Bank in four key areas and recommending that the Attorney General, Kamala Harris, authorise a filing of civil enforcement against the bank. At his hearing, it was also revealed that during his time as a hedge fund manager, he managed numerous offshore funds and used multiple tax havens to help his clients avoid paying US tax. Democrats pointed to the inequity of the tax system, with Senator Wyden identifying Mnuchin's hedge funds as a prime example of tax evasion. There is no clearer example than Mr. Mnuchin's hedge fund setting up outposts in Anguilla and the Cayman Islands, an action that can be explained only by the island's 0% tax rate. It certainly wasn't for ease of commute or the infrastructure. In Mr. Mnuchin's case, millions of dollars in profits from Hollywood exports like the movie Avatar were funneled to an offshore web of entities and investors. When Mr. Mnuchin's bank was up for a merger that had the potential to deliver a huge financial gain, a foundation he chaired reportedly used tax-exempt dollars to fund an AstroTurf campaign pushing for the deal's approval. In the public comment period of a potential merger, that is the equivalent of stuffing the ballot box. At the hearing, it was also found that Mnuchin had failed to disclose $95 million of real estate investment, which Mnuchin described as a mistake made amid a mountain of bureaucracy. He also failed to disclose over $900,000 worth of artwork held by his children. So, although his new role would be to prosecute tax evaders and financial criminals, even with all the evidence and testimony of tax evasion and greed, 
the Senate voted 53 to 47 in favour of appointing Mnuchin, with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin III being the only Democrat to vote in favour of him. And with that, Mnuchin was given the keys to the world's largest economy. Our number one priority is tax reform, Mnuchin said after Trump was elected. And that is what he did. And by reform, he meant tax cuts. Huge tax cuts. In fact, the largest tax cuts in a lifetime. But these tax cuts were for the rich. And Elizabeth Warren was eager to question the tax proposal. I want to ask about the tax proposal that the administration released a few weeks ago. It proposed slashing the rate on all pass-through entities, partnerships, LLCs, S-corps to 15%. So I just want to take a look for a minute at who that benefits. 70% of all income from pass-through entities goes to the top 1% of taxpayers. That's households making more than $450,000 a year. And according to an analysis this week from the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center, this pass-through change would put over $1 trillion in the pockets of the top 1% of households, while 95% of middle-income households would receive zero in tax benefits from it. So other than creating new tax deductions for yachts, it's hard to come up with a more targeted tax cut that goes to the rich other than this, this cut on uh, the rate on pass-throughs. So Secretary Mnuchin, with working families struggling to make ends meet, why is this administration giving the ultra-wealthy this massive tax cut? Mnuchin promised that any tax reductions we have in upper income taxes will be offset by less deductions so that there will be no absolute tax cut for the upper class. But his policy softened and with what became known as the Mnuchin rule, it became abundantly clear that the benefits would be for the wealthy, Wall Street and big business. Firstly, rates were cut from 39.6 to 37% for income above $600,000. Secondly, certain business owners who take their income through LLCs could take 20% off the top of their earnings before being taxed. Also note here that Donald Trump had over 500 of these types of businesses. Thirdly, the exemption on estate taxes doubled from 11 million to 22 million. But the centrepiece of the bill was a massive corporate tax cut from 35% to 21%, designed to reduce corporate taxes by $1.38 trillion over 10 years. Mnuchin stated that these tax cuts would be a way to boost the economy, yet there was little evidence that any of this happened. Instead, the wealthy consolidated the benefits, socialised against the poor with a massive increase in borrowing by the Fed. Dana Trier, the tax expert hired by the Treasury in 2017, identified the reason that these cuts benefited the rich disproportionately. The biggest benefit did not come from decreased taxes, but increased income and she was disappointed that the deep corporate tax cuts were enacted as they rewarded old capital. The existing shareholders of corporations, where 84% of stocks are owned by the wealthiest 10%. As what has become a typical strategy by big business, these tax cuts were used for a record number of share buybacks, boosting both the share price and dividends. And 2018 saw record share buybacks, jumping nearly 50% on the previous year, $1.5 
with corporations spending $770 billion on them. And this was all despite Mnuchin saying to Congress, as I've said all along, the objective of the president is that rich people don't get tax cuts. Trier noted that Mnuchin repeatedly ordered the Treasury to crunch the number on proposals for the bill, stating that every time he found out the rich people were benefiting, he was just in a state of complete dismay. Finally, Mnuchin conceded in an interview with Politico, so when you're cutting taxes across the board, it's very hard not to give tax cuts to the wealthy. Exactly what Elizabeth Warren had pointed out to him. But not all big businesses were impressed. Patagonia donated the $10 million tax relief in 2018 to environmental charities, saying it was morally wrong to keep the money. Patagonia CEO Rose Macario posted a letter to LinkedIn calling the tax cuts irresponsible, stating that, We have always paid our fair share of federal and state taxes. Being a responsible company means paying your taxes in proportion to your success and supporting your state and federal governments, which in turn contributes to the health and well-being of civil society. Taxes fund our important public services, our first responders and our democratic institutions. Taxes protect the most vulnerable in our society, our public lands and other life-giving resources. In spite of this, the Trump administration initiated a corporate tax cut threatening these services at the expense of our planet. But of course, one group of people were over the moon. The bankers. There is a joke going around here that if I'd have known how good Trump was going to be for Wall Street, I'd have campaigned for him, an anonymous Goldman Sachs executive told Politico. Steve Mnuchin was the architect of the Trump tax cuts, uh, which were these huge multi-trillion dollar tax cuts, mostly to wealthy people and corporations that uh, at the end of 2017 they passed. And Mnuchin time and again said these tax cuts are going to pay for themselves and promised that the Treasury Department was working on a study that showed that, that showed through evidence that these tax cuts would pay for themselves. And reporters kept asking for it and asking for it and asking for it. And finally, what they ended up putting out was a one-page paper that was uh, economists saw as completely ridiculous. And indeed, what we know based on deficit statistics and, and things that happened uh, in the years following the Trump tax cuts is that it was completely fraudulent and false. I mean, the, there were no tax cuts paying for themselves because of increased economic growth. That just did not happen. And so Mnuchin is bringing sort of the same qualities of mild incompetence and uh, unpreparedness to the Treasury Department that he brought to all of his other business ventures. That was David Dayen, author of Fat Cat the Steve Mnuchin story. During his 2016 campaign, Trump promised to eliminate both the national debt and deficit within eight years and inherited a deficit of $585 billion when he took office, 58% lower than the $1.4 trillion that Obama inherited in 2009 following the financial crisis. Yet by 2019, the deficit had grown to just shy of $1 trillion dollars while the national debt had grown from $19 trillion when he took office to $26 trillion as of today, a rise of 37%, and recent comments from Mnuchin implies it's going to climb much higher. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell recently warned Congress that the US federal budget has been on an unsustainable path for years. The deficit is expected to hit $3.7 trillion in 2020, 
the current record for a fiscal year is 1.4 trillion in 2009 following the housing crisis. Every generation is entitled to spend what it wants to spend on the things it thinks it needs, but it really ought to pay for them, in some sense, rather than passing the bills on to the kids, said Powell. Over time, future generations, our kids and our grandkids, their tax dollars will be going to servicing the debt that we incurred to buy the stuff we wanted when we were in charge. And Mnuchin's tax cuts did not go down well when he was invited to talk at UCLA, where he was hissed at during the entire session, with some protesters forcibly removed from the auditorium. Following the event, Mnuchin tried to have the video blocked from release, but failed. Even before this year's pandemic-induced economic crisis, investment was in decline in the last two quarters of 2019. A far cry from the 6% GDP growth Trump promised and the 3-4% target Mnuchin set for himself back in 2016. Despite this, Mnuchin had further plans to use his position in government to benefit himself and his friends on Wall Street by calling for the stripping back of Dodd-Frank, the number one priority on the regulatory side, he said, claiming it was too complicated and it prevented banks from lending. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act was introduced by Obama in 2010 to protect consumers from a repeat of the 2008 financial crisis. It was the most comprehensive reform since the 1929 crash. The Glass-Steagall Act came into effect in 1933. It separated investment banking from retail, prohibiting retail banks from using depositor funds for risky investments. It also prohibited investment banks from having a controlling interest in retail banks. What it sought to do was end the dangerous actions by Wall Street, which led to a run on the banks with over 4,000 failing during the Great Depression. The Act managed to restore confidence in the banking system, as banks could only use deposit funds for safe investments, while the FDIC insurance programme would protect consumers if any should fail. Yet during the Reagan administration, the banks campaigned to change the rules as they were anti-competitive on the international stage. And in 1999, Bill Clinton repealed Glass-Steagall, signing the Financial Services Modernization Act, giving Wall Street the codes to blow up the economy a decade later. Following the crisis, the Dodd-Frank Act was passed, which aimed to prevent a repeat of 2008, and would 1. Keep an eye on Wall Street and large insurance companies, 2. Stop banks from making risky investments with depositors' money. 3. Review Fed bailouts. 4. Monitor risky derivatives. 5. Bring transparency to hedge fund trading. 6. Oversee credit rating agencies. and 7. Regulate loans, mortgages and credit cards. After the financial crisis, there was a lot of desire on behalf of Washington to try to rein in a runaway financial system. And what happened is Congress passed uh, a series of tweaks to the regulatory structure that were named after two leaders of the Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee, respectively, Christopher Dodd and Barney Frank. So uh, this became the Dodd-Frank Act. And uh, it's very long and very complex. And uh, it, it puts a lot of discretion in the hands of the regulators. There aren't a lot of hard you know, uh, rules 
that banks have to follow that are written into the law. The, the law, for the most part, says the Treasury Department or the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency or the FDIC or these other agencies will come up with rules that will follow these various principles. So uh, the Obama administration uh, took many years to put those rules in place. And then when the Trump administration comes in, they can be dismantled uh, uh, because of the way the law is written. It gives the regulators a lot of discretion and they can just sort of rewrite those rules. And that is what the Trump administration has has sort of gone about doing uh, in a variety of different ways. And of course, the Treasury Secretary is instrumental to that. The Dodd-Frank Act also created the Financial Stability Oversight Council and the Office of Financial Research to identify threats to the financial stability of the United States and gave the Federal Reserve new powers to regulate systematically important institutions. Yet Mnuchin wanted this removed, risking a repeat of the previous crisis. Mnuchin, uh, by virtue of being Treasury Secretary, is the chair of what is called the Financial Stability Oversight Council. And what that does, it's supposed to monitor the entire system for systemic risk. And it's supposed to engage in enhanced uh, regulatory observation of actors in the system that it believes are systemically important. So one of the first things that the Trump administration does is it designates a number of entities, particularly insurance companies, no longer systemically significant. In other words, they don't have to abide by the various rules that are put on systemically significant firms. So Mnuchin essentially lets those insurance companies out of the system, off the hook. Uh, These include companies like AIG, which was a major accelerant of the financial crisis because it sold a bunch of toxic insurance to banks, actually, known as credit default swaps. So there are other things that uh, the the Trump administration has done to weaken Dodd-Frank along a host of uh, different areas. Uh, Mnuchin was uh, right at the center of that, whether it was uh, weakening the frequency of what are known as stress tests, which is where the banks are uh, tested for how they would hold up uh, during a crisis. I mean, here we are right now, we actually have a crisis and the the stress tests were made weaker. They were done less frequently. Uh, So that's one example. Uh, Banks have been told that they can hold less capital. In other words, uh, uh, money that can be used to absorb losses in the event of a downturn. There's a thing called the Volcker Rule that's part of Dodd-Frank, where this basically says that investment banks, large banks, cannot trade with depositor money uh, for their own purposes. Uh, And this has been weakened to the point that it practically, you know, I mean, in in fundamental terms, it kind of doesn't exist anymore. So there have been a host of ways in which Mnuchin, along with other regulators, has weakened the uh, financial regulatory structure in the United States, and that just uh, opens it up to a lot more risk. So if this does accelerate from an economic crisis uh, from the pandemic, 
into a financial crisis, I, I believe that we're going to be less prepared because of the actions that Mnuchin and his associates have taken. In 2017, to appease his banking buddies, Mnuchin proposed sweeping changes to Dodd-Frank. In a report ordered by Trump, Mnuchin proposed to reduce the oversight of large financial institutions, as well as a loosening of the new mortgage restrictions, which were designed to help prevent the kind of mortgage meltdown that Mnuchin profited off with One West. The report said that a sensible rebalancing of regulatory principles is warranted in light of the significant improvement in the strength of the financial system and the economy, as well as the benefit of perspective since the Great Recession. The Democrats, who had largely led the recovery from the 2008 crisis, were against the repeal. And Lisa Donner, Executive Director of America for Financial Reform, a group advocating tougher oversight of the financial system, stated, We need more effective regulation and enforcement, not rollbacks driven by Wall Street and predatory lenders. And Mnuchin's foe, Elizabeth Warren, battled him over this in Congress. Let me get this straight. You're saying that you are in favour of Glass-Steagall, which breaks apart the two arms of banking, uh, regular banking and commercial banking, except you don't want to break apart the two parts of banking. This is like something straight out of George Orwell. You're saying simultaneously you're in favour of breaking up the banks. That's what Glass-Steagall is. I've never said we're in favour of breaking up the banks and separating. If we had, it would have been very simple. Let me try it one more time. We're going to run out of time here, but I have to try this one more time. What does it mean to be in favor of 21st century Glass-Steagall if it does not mean breaking apart these two functions in banking? You know what? I'd be more than happy to come see you no, I, and follow I, up and talk about this. Just tell me what this. it means. Had, had we, we never came just out tell me what it means we should to, separate Tell me what 21st century Glass-Steagall means if it doesn't mean breaking apart those two functions, it's an easy question uh, it's or actually, an impossible question. It's actually a complicated question I'll because bet. there's many aspects of it, okay? The simple answer, which we don't support, is breaking up banks from investment banks. We think that would be a huge mistake. But again, I'm more than happy to listen to your ideas on it. You obviously have strong views, and I'd be happy to follow up and listen to I, you. This is just bizarre. The idea that you can say we are in favor of Glass-Steagall but not breaking up the We never said we were in favor of Glass-Steagall. We said we were in favor of a 21st century Glass-Steagall. It couldn't be clearer. We are in in favor of a bill that is called breaking up the banks, only don't break up the banks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Cortez also confronted Mnuchin about his department's focus on his Wall Street buddies over protecting Americans. You recently spoke at a conference of executives where the cheapest ticket to attend cost $12,000. And you joked, and I quote, you said, you should all thank me for your bank stocks doing better. I'm sure you don't feel that way today. But this remark came during a discussion of your efforts to roll back Wall Street reform, including under an executive order signed by President Trump, before a room full of powerful Wall Street executives. Well, let me just tell you this. While while you're working to undo those financial protections, I am still hearing from uh, constituents in my state who are suffering. On March the 14th, 2018, the Senate passed the Economic Growth, Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, exempting dozens of US banks from Dodd-Frank. And on May the 24th, following the law passing in the House of Representatives, President Trump signed the partial repeal into law. And again, Mnuchin 
had put Wall Street first. One of Mnuchin's greatest achievements during Trump's first term is keeping his job. Trump has the record for White House and Cabinet churn during a first term, which has been littered with resignations and firing of key staff, probably unsurprising for a man so used to saying, You're fired. It is all about loyalty over ability with Mnuchin, the willing fall guy for the economic policies which has driven wider inequality in America, with former Treasury Secretary Lawrence H. Summers tweeting that Mnuchin may be the greatest sycophant in cabinet history. Donald Trump drives loyalty by ensuring that dissent is met in the harshest possible way, from public humiliations to firings. Following Charlottesville, the president commented that there was blame on both sides at a white supremacist and neo-Nazi rally that saw an anti-Nazi protester killed by James Alexfield Jr. who drove his car into a crowd. Where Veteran Affairs Secretary David Shulkin was sacked after he contradicted Trump, expressing outrage, Mnuchin jumped to Trump's defence, which led to both his high school and Yale classmates penning a letter to him requesting his resignation. Mnuchin also described Trump as having perfect genes, and when Trump called one African-American congresswoman a low-IQ individual, Mnuchin explained that the president likes making funny names. As American football players took the knee in protest against police brutality, Mnuchin again leapt to Trump's defence after the president said, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, about Colin Kaepernick taking the knee, with Mnuchin saying, it's not about race, it's not about free speech. They can do free speech on their own time. This is about respect for the military and first responders in the country. He also defended Trump's call for Congress to give him a line-item veto, even after the Supreme Court had ruled it unconstitutional. This unbridled loyalty has allowed Mnuchin to skirt all pressure against his own actions. From failing to disclose his finances to lying to Congress about One West, his violations of ethic rules in promoting Lego Batman and his use of government jets for private trips. But the biggest test of loyalty has come with the Democrats piling increasing pressure on the release of Trump's tax returns. The choice for Mnuchin is clear. Will he faithfully execute the laws of the United States or continue as Trump's most subservient minion? Donald Trump is the first president in decades to refuse to disclose his tax returns and under increasing pressure, Mnuchin refused to comply with the congressional subpoena and turn them over, leading to a fire exchange in the House Ways and Means Committee between Mnuchin and House Democrat Representative Bill Pascrell. By refusing to turn over Donald Trump's business and personal tax returns to this committee, I think you're breaking the law. You have no legitimate legal rationale. The Inspector General report cleared Mnuchin of violating department procedures, but the matter isn't settled and it is now before a federal judge. But the real question is, what the fuck is Donald Trump hiding? Very long in the Trump administration, uh, so you know, I give him credit, you know, quote unquote credit for, uh, you know, assuming he wanted to stick around and, and work for Donald Trump, which is a big assumption uh, that, you know, he's done a good job of preserving himself in that environment and therefore 
sure he's not rocking any boats. He, you know, he likes the job too much. He's not willing to stand up and do and say what's uh, clearly right. You know, he's not alone in that. Uh, even the people who resigned, like Gary Cohn, uh, are spineless amoebas when it comes to standing up to, to and pointing out what this administration has really been like. One of the challenges of having a multi-millionaire Wall Street banker in the role of Treasury Secretary is that it's hard to really be connected to the average Joe. We saw in episode three, Mnuchin was told to repay the taxpayer after using Air Force private jets to show for him and his wife Louise Linton around. And Mnuchin was again accused of being out of touch when dealing with his $6 trillion stimulus package to help the American economy. More than 40 million people have lost their jobs since the country was shut down, and part of the recovery package was to provide eligible workers with a cheque for $1,200. On a CBS interview, Mnuchin said that the $1,200 cheque should be a bridging loan keeping families going for the 10-week duration of the lockdown. A man worth an estimated $400 million seemingly asking people to live on $120 a week was quickly derided by the public, and opposition politicians, including the New York representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who tweeted the classic Arrested Development joke at him, It's your monthly rent, Michael. What could it cost? $10? Mnuchin is also facing a lawsuit over the administration's exclusionary policies with regards to the stimulus checks. The Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security or CARES Act, included a provision which barred US citizens who were married to an immigrant without a social security number, affecting 1.2 million Americans. By denying US citizen children cash assistance now for discriminatory reasons in the midst of a pandemic that has caused their families, like many others, serious hardship, the CARES Act has inflicted particularly severe injuries on an especially vulnerable group that numbers in the millions, the lawsuit claims. The claim also alleges that the government's policy violates the Fifth Amendment rights of US children and treats them as second-class citizens. It wasn't only politicians who were getting into a Twitter spat with Mnuchin. In March, after Trump visited a mask factory with the Guns N' Roses song Live and Let Die blasting out of the speakers, Axel Rose tweeted, It's official. Whatever anyone previously thought of Steve Mnuchin, he's officially an asshole. Mnuchin rose to the bait, tweeting back, What have you done for your country lately? Now, let's hold the fuck on a second here, Steve. This is Axel Rose of Guns and Fucking Roses, who wrote Appetite for Destruction. Back the fuck off, man. Anyway, back to the $6 trillion stimulus he provided this year. Where exactly did all that money go? Well, Mnuchin said earlier this month that the loan recipients and the amounts given are proprietary information and therefore is confidential and cannot be released. 4.5 million companies received over $511 billion in loans, including hundreds of publicly listed companies who can access funds from private sources. And those loans will be forgiven if businesses use the money to keep employees on payroll or rehire workers who have been laid off. So that's free money given to companies with no oversight whatsoever. 
Given the many problems with the program, it is imperative American taxpayers know if the money is going where Congress intended to the truly small and unbanked small businesses, Senator Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said. The administration's resistance to transparency is outrageous and only serves to raise further suspicions about how the funds are being distributed and who is actually benefiting. So what's next? We have in the Treasury a man who is incredibly wealthy but morally bankrupt, who is entirely out of sync with how the majority of the country think but keeps enacting law and policy to keep a small minority wealthy. Tax cuts have led to increased borrowing and decreased spending on core services but have allowed the richest to get richer while government debt is spiralling out of control. In a democracy, the people decide who should be in power. One person, one vote. However, it's not always that straightforward. We have seen Trump preempting an election loss by stoking the idea that votes will be rigged months before the election which his cabinet has oversight of. With him recently tweeting, Rig 2020 election. Millions of mail-in ballots will be printed by foreign countries and others. It will be the scandal of our times. There are a number of scenarios which are set to make this election one, which could end up in the courts. Firstly, there is a high chance that this election will see a high number of mail-in votes, which could mean that the final numbers are not known on the night. As such, Trump could claim victory leading to a repeat of the 2000 elections which ended up in the Supreme Court. And recent voting chaos in the Georgia primary is an early sign of troubles ahead. There were numerous reports of equipment failing, inadequate number of machines and missing or poorly trained workers. Further, many who had requested absentee ballots never received them, having to choose between observing coronavirus risks and voting, which disproportionately affects those predisposed to the risks of the virus. Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, was accused of deliberately attempting to suppress the Democratic turnout, but this largely failed due to a record number of those casting absentee ballots and a strong Democratic representation, but the warning is there. Trump has been trying to reduce the number of people able to vote by post, a method of voting traditionally favoured by Democrats, and in many areas there has been a reduction in the number of voting stations. In Texas, for example... Analysis by The Guardian newspaper found that places where black and Latino population is grown by the largest numbers, they had experienced the majority of closures which would benefit Republicans. It was reported this week that Kentucky will have just 200 polling stations for their primaries, down from 3,700 on an average election year. Voting rights expert Ari Berman wrote in a tweet, there will be one polling station for 616,000 registered voters in Louisville's Jefferson County, where half of the state's black voters live. We believe the judge disregarded evidence from our expert witness that one location will suppress the vote, particularly among African Americans, read a statement co-authored by Jason Neems, a Republican state representative, and Keisha Dorsey, a Democratic councilwoman for Louisville Metro. The lawmakers were behind the lawsuit, which demanded an increase in statewide polling stations. And when it comes to voter suppression, it's not just postal votes and polling stations. People are being actively taken off voting registrars, and not always for the right reasons. Republican advisor Justin Clark was recently caught on tape saying, Traditionally it's always been Republicans suppressing votes in places. Let's start protecting our voters. We know where they are. Let's start playing a fence a little bit. 
That's what you're going to see in 2020. It's going to be a much bigger program, a much more aggressive program, a much better funded program. In Wisconsin, where Clark was advising, Trump won the state in the last election by just 23,000 votes. However, 234,000 people have been removed from the state's voter rolls, 7% of the total number of voters. This was after a conservative advocacy group, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, convinced a circuit court judge to order the state to remove voters who had not confirmed their registration in just 30 days. Previously, spring 2021 was the cut-off date for voter registration. Overall, at least 17 million people have been purged from the voter rolls since the 2016 election. And whilst it is not a new phenomenon to remove inactive voters from the electoral roll, the pace at which it is happening now is unprecedented. Those that are removed tend to be in populations that move a lot, the young, the poor and the people who live in cities, all groups that tend to favour Democrats. As the American presidential election draws nearer, we can now see that Trump's promise to drain the swamp and punish Wall Street couldn't be further from reality. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin has installed his One West and Wall Street buddies in a number of key positions, not least Comptroller of the Currency, the department that keeps checks and balances on the Treasury. Wall Street has never been happier. Regulations have been loosened and bailouts have increased. Bailouts that are marked as stimulus and loans that don't have to be paid back. Due to Trump's fragile ego and a lack of people who will challenge his policy, he has been able to piss away America's economy in a compliant Steve Mnuchin. So far up Trump's arse, he can see Mike Pence's feet. Trump promised to stand up for the working man, but his actions have never met his rhetoric. As keen Republicans whoop and holler at his rallies, many fail to realise that under Trump, they have become poorer. He has allowed the Wall Street bankers, the financial elite he so derided and criticised in his campaign, to line their own pockets whilst ripping off the average American, more obviously and more overtly than at any point in history. But this is something he has always done. Borrow from others and fuck them if he can't pay back. But this time, with the help of Steve Mnuchin, he has done it to the American economy. Worse than any other president in history. Fuck the cleaners, fuck the builders, fuck the nurses, fuck all the hard-working Americans who built the economy. In the process of making this podcast and researching Mnuchin's murky past, I found myself going down rabbit holes, often saying to myself, I cannot believe he did that. I've gone back over some parts time and again in disbelief, thinking I must have got the facts wrong. How do people like Steve Mnuchin go to sleep at night, knowingly fucking over and ripping off thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of people who work hard every day trying to keep a roof over their heads? How could he take their homes from them? How can he buy his Wall Street buddies steak dinners and just brush the leftover crumbs to the American people and expect them to be happy about it? As I said on my previous show, we are living in a time where a man loses his life over a fake $20 bill while others are rewarded for stealing billions, even trillions of dollars in the name of economic stimulus, a stimulus required to fix the problems they caused. Steve Mnuchin should not be in charge of the US economy and many have gone to jail for far less. But for me, it's more than that. How have we got to the point where we allow these people to time and time again get away with such large-scale and brazen criminality. 
It really is hard to believe. It is hard to comprehend because the vast majority of us, we're not sociopaths. We morally wouldn't or couldn't do this to other people. But these people aren't like you and I. As Andreas Antonopoulos told us in an earlier episode of Defiance. Steve Mnuchin is the embodiment of kleptocracy, is the most obvious caricature of a crook given the keys to the treasury so that they can magnify their criminal activity. The first instinct of every member of this kleptocracy is to exploit the crisis for personal enrichment. And at every step, they have found a way to direct the response to the crisis into enriching themselves, no matter how many bodies pile up around them. And the problem for most people is that people who are not sociopaths cannot conceive of behavior that is entirely indifferent and lacks the ability to even feel empathy for the suffering of others. That behavior is by definition alien because the human psyche, when working correctly, cannot behave in a way that ignores the suffering. When I was preparing to release this, I was warned that this show might have legal repercussions, that Mnuchin might sue me, but I doubted it would ever be on his radar. But if on the off chance that you hear this, Steve, you can go fuck yourself. This show was produced by Tom Patterson and Danny Knowles. Additional thanks to Daniel Johnson for artwork, as well as guests David Dayan and William D. Cohen. Please do check out their books, which are included in the show notes. Big thanks to everyone else who has helped with this series. Alexei Papalexopoulos, Karen Chadson, and George Sakao. Also, thank you to all the journalists whose great work has enabled us to connect the dots here. The Intercept, New York Times, Vanity Fair, The Hill, Bloomberg, Reuters, and many, many more. It is the great investigative work done by many other journalists which has enabled us to put this together. So thank you so much to all of those. Our website is defiance.news where you can download previous shows and watch our films. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest exchange for buying Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores if you'd like to support our work please share the show out with your friends and family on social media subscribe to defiance on your favorite platform and leave us a review on itunes i'm peter mccormack you can check out my other show what bitcoin did at whatbitcoindid.com and i'll be back next week with another episode of defiance